Well, someone forgot to warn Pete that it was extremely dangerous to get me to talk about Christmas. <laughs> um, so, it's just as well he's not here, probably. I'll be extremely restrained this year um, and not embark on the rant I've gone on in the past. But I will just pause to encourage you to read the biblical account of Christmas at the beginning of Matthew's and Luke's Gospels. Because they're very different, and I'm very conscious that I'm saying all of this standing under the cast-offs of Sainsbury's Secular Christmas from a few years ago. Um, But you will find that what the Bible says about the birth of Jesus is very different from the sentimental claptrap that gets thrown at us at this time of year. I'll give you some clues. There's no innkeeper. There's actually even an inn, unless you read one particular version. No stable, no donkey, and no kings or camels. There's nothing wrong with a bit of artistic license, and I'm going to use some artistic license this morning, but we do need to dwell in the biblical narrative, not the sentimentalised version that we're constantly bombarded with um, at this time of year. We need to be... I said that, didn't I? We do it best by going to the source of what God's done in in the world, the source of that narrative, which is Scripture. Now, today is the second Sunday of Advent, and I've been given a brief to talk about the Messiah in the Old Testament and how Jesus is the light coming into the darkness. Now, that's a massive subject, and we could talk about it for hours. So, I'm going to do my best to be restrained. Um, It's made a whole lot harder by the fact we could go to all sorts of places, We could go to Jesus' statement that I'm the light of the world in John's Gospel, and we probably will if we get time. Or we could look at the idea that the Lord is my light and salvation in Psalm 27, verse 1, where it says, the Lord is my light and salvation, whom shall I fear? Or we could go to Psalm 119, verse 105, which talks about your word being a lamp to my path and a light to my feet. Or we could look at some of Isaiah's prophecies, Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7, about a people who walked in darkness, seeing a great light, or the passage in Isaiah 60, about great darkness covering the earth, or the hopeful message of Micah 7, verse 8, perhaps. Don't gloat over me, my enemy. Though I've fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. But first, I want you to come back with me and imagine that you're the Judean man or woman in the street, or the man or woman on the Judean omnibus, if they had them, a couple of thousand years ago, before or around the time of the birth of Jesus. You've heard the stories about the glory days, when David and Solomon ruled over the land, and people came from far and near to admire the glory of the temple, dripping with gold. But that was a high point that has never again been reached. After them, there was a period of decline. 
and the northern part of the kingdom largely broke with God's covenant um, with Israel and ended up being overrun by the Assyrians. Then, between five and six hundred years ago, the southern part of the kingdom, the bit where you live, Judea, was captured by the Babylonians. And the backbone of your society was carted off into Babylon, along with all the national wealth and the temple treasures for 70 years of exile. And eventually, that exile ended, and Ezra and others returned to begin the work of rebuilding a nation about four and a half centuries ago. And they did. They were utterly faithful to God's call, and they rebuilt the temple. And later, Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, but all of this was in the teeth of opposition and sabotage from the surrounding nations. It was a struggle at every stage to make any kind of progress. Then, 300 years or so ago, Alexander, who will later be called Alexander the Great, swept through the Middle East, turning it into part of his Greek empire. And he tried to make the whole region Greek, imposing his language and his culture on you. And then, about 150 years ago, there was a brief resurgence when a guy called Antiochus Epiphanes came and offered a sacrifice to Zeus in the temple. There was a massive outcry, and the Maccabees revolted against him. And there was a golden period for a few years where the Maccabees ruled, and everything was beginning to be brought back to, to within God's covenant. Everyone thought that was the start of a new age. This is the time when God's come to sort it all out. Then the Romans came. They told you they'd be, build good roads, the kind of first century equivalent of making the trains run on time. They'd sort out the water supply and they'd bring peace and stability. And while they've extended a measure of rel- religious freedom to Judea, they've been utterly brutal. Anyone who opposes them in any way ends up being crucified. A horrific and barbaric means of execution. Their main preoccupation seems to be to keep the people of Rome happy and fed. So they tax you up to the ears, they cart off your crops to Rome, and they rule with an iron fist. Your families had its ancestral lands taken away from it and given to one of the Romans' quislings. You don't call him that because the term wasn't invented till the Second World War. But that means you have to queue up every morning in the marketplace if you're a man, hoping that someone will give you a day's work. Jill talked about that. That still goes on in the world today, but this was happening in first century Judea hoping that someone will give you a day's work as a hired hand. Or if you're a woman, you'll be at home trying to find other ways of earning money from home and wondering if your husband is going to have had any work and come home with bread this evening to feed the family. If they don't, you and your family will go to bed hungry. Times are bad, and the world is a dark place for everyone who's living in Judea. You try to keep your head down, you try to keep your family fed, you try to honour God in the appropriate ways and just get through 
and hope that things will change. Now, some people are trying to change things. There are, you've got some friends who are zealots, they're called, who go around murdering Roman soldiers in the back streets of Jerusalem just to try and make a point. Uh, And they're trying to start a wider rebellion. But the Romans always crush those attempts brutally. Then there are the Pharisees who are passionate for God, absolutely passionate for God, and who believe that if Israel or Judah would just keep God's law for one day even, then God would break in and sort things out. And that God will bless them and deal with the Romans. Then there are the Sadducees who've decided that they need to to accommodate the Romans. They're a bit more theologically liberal and they tone down the stuff like believing in resurrection. They don't like the way the Pharisees have extended and expanded on the scriptural law to try and keep God's people from transgressing against it. They manage to keep on good terms with the Romans, and they're trying to keep everything part calm and peaceful, but they would, wouldn't they? Because they're from the aristocracy, and they're the ones who've got the most to lose. And others just want to withdraw from the world and lose themselves in God, the charismatics of their day. There's a community of them down at Qumran who are busily copying out scripture uh, and, and the writings and hiding them away in caves in case the devastation gets even worse than what's already happened. They think they're the only ones still faithful to God and they behave like it too. They're known as the sect of the Essenes, and in fact in the 20th century their work will become known as the Dead Sea Scrolls when a shepherd boy throws a stone into a cave and hears the shattering of a pot that contained a scroll. But in the back of your mind is the scripture you hear read week by week in the synagogue. Even as Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied your nation's fall, they also prophesied that a time would come when God would put things right, when light would shine into darkness, when God's kingdom would break into this world. And when you and your friends talk about this, you all conclude that this Messiah Scripture talks about must be a military figure who's going to give the Romans what they've got coming to them. He's really going to fix them once and for all. You're looking forward to the day when the streets will be lined with the corpses of dead Roman soldiers. And you become, once again, first and foremost, the people of God. It never occurs to you that you might be misunderstanding what those scripture passages are actually referring to. That God might have a plan that is radically different from the way you, the Zealots, the Pharisees, or the Sadducees, or even those crazy Essenes, think. First, there's that passage in Isaiah 9... Sorry, my slides today are very wordy, but 
It's because I'm trying to tell you a story. I'm not trying to illustrate it. And I want you to use your imagination because one of the things we have to do is to be drawn into what it is that God's doing in this world. Drawn into the narrative of what God is doing. So there's this passage in Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7, which says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali up in the north of the country. But in future, he will honour Galilee in the northeast of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across the shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And you reflect on this passage as you contemplate the sorry state of the nation. Sorry, I got lost my place there. Isaiah, writing about seven or eight hundred years ago, that's seven or eight hundred years before your imaginary person in Judah, not seven hundred years ago now, don't come up and correct me at the end, has spent time, some t- has spent some time before this setting out the dreadful state of God's people in that earlier period. And then he looks forward and prophesies this. So this is Isaiah looking forward. He prophesies in verse 2 that light will burst into their darkness. In verse 3, he prophesies that the nation, so what does he prophesy? That the nation will be enlarged and their joy increased. Beginning three sections, the, the, the following three sections all begin with the word for, but in our translations back in the 21st century here, One of them doesn't, so you lose the sense of what he's talking about here. But there is a four at the beginning of verse five in Hebrew. If you don't believe me, come up later and I'll show you. But um, he gives us three reasons why their joy will be increased. Four, as in the day of Midian's defeat, which is Gideon. Remember the story of Gideon? As in the day of Midian's defeat, just as God delivered Israel from the Midianites through Gideon, he will shatter the oppression over them again. This time, it was the Assyrians that Isaiah was referring to. And then in verse 5, the 4 isn't translated in the NIV here, but because all the the machinery of war will be dismantled and peace will reign. And then in verses 6 and 7, because a king will be born who will reign. He will be divine. 
the wonderful used here in wonderful counsellor doesn't mean that he's brilliant at helping people with their problems. It means he's divine in his wisdom, okay? It means he's God. The wonderful word is, word is normally only used of God. The everlasting of Father speaks of an eternal being. That's God. And mighty God makes this explicit. This is talking about God here, clearly. And as you know, he'll be a king in the line of David. Your heart longs for this day when this prophecy will be fulfilled. When the land is enlarged again. When the Roman oppressors, like all of the others before them, are booted out. And peace reigns. Not just an absence of war, but the true shalom of God, the peace of God. And God himself reigns in human form. And his rule is righteous and just, constantly spreading and growing. And in that passage, the reasons why um, the people in Walking in Darkness have seen a great light is because peace has come, in verse 4. All the machinery of war has been dismantled, in verse 5. And in verse 6, a divine ruler has come into the nation. And you reflect on that passage and you think, wow, I just find it hard to believe that's going to happen at the moment. And then, as your mind wanders over other passages of Scripture, you turn to the rather terrifying passage in Isaiah 7, verses 10 to 17, which says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, and I'll explain him in a moment. Ask the Lord your God for a sign whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah says, Hear now, you house of David. Ahaz was a Davidic king. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He'll be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah, he will bring the king of Assyria. And the Assyrians did come, swept through, uh, and destroyed pretty much the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. So Isaiah had come to warn Ahaz, who was the king, and promised him deliverance, and offered him a sign from God that God would deliver Israel. And Ahaz said, nah, nah, no thanks. I don't want a sign from God. which results in this warning from God that the nation will be overrun. Isaiah also warns Ahaz of someone called Emmanuel, which means literally with us God. Emmanuel is with us and El is, is God. So who would be born of a virgin and during whose lifetime Assyria would descend on Israel. Now you don't really need, you. I don't mean you, you probably all do, but you're our fictional um, Judean really doesn't understand this passage, and nor do I. But in later times, Matthew will declare the birth of Jesus 
to be fulfilling it. The rabbis of your day debate endlessly about what this passage means, and biblical scholars will still be disagreeing over it in 2,000 years' time, so I'm not even going to enter into that debate. What it does seem to be saying, though, is that there are going to be times of judgment at the hands of Assyria, but God will be among his people during this period. And what you don't know is that a couple of thousand years' time from now, God's people will be singing songs about Emmanuel, sentimental, lovely songs, Emmanuel, when actually Emmanuel was a figure of judgment about Assyria coming and the nation being judged. We just need to be careful how we sing about some of these things. Without, they just won't realise, these people in 2,000 years' time, that Emmanuel refers to God's judgment. And then your mind goes to another passage, Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 5, which says this. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Towards the end of Isaiah, he promises a glorious future for God's people. In your gloomy and miserable situation, I don't mean your gloomy you know what I'm talking about here, um, you don't feel very cheerful, and frankly, you're beginning to lose hope because it hasn't happened, has it? These are lovely words, but what's going on? Nothing's happening. The Romans are still trampling all over you. You find it difficult to envisage nations flocking to this oppressed corner of the world. And as you reflect, you notice that this passage, like some of the others, and I've highlighted it there, refers to light an awful lot. And your mind wanders to a few other places where the theme of light creeps in. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, not that you have chapters and verses in your scrolls, That was a later invention as well. You read that Israel is supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, to the whole world. Gentiles just means foreigners. In Psalm 119, as I mentioned earlier, you read that God's word is a lamp to your path and a light to your feet. Psalm 104 verse 2 refers to the Lord wrapping himself in light as a garment. And later in this chapter in Isaiah, the Lord is referred to as your everlasting light. Now, this sets you thinking as you turn in for the night, praying that someone will hire you as you wait in the marketplace tomorrow. Some years later, you go up to Jerusalem to take your sacrifice at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. And there's a guy there who's been getting quite a reputation. Some people are apparently claiming that he is the Messiah, or at least a prophet. But you've also heard 
that he's from Galilee. And you know perfectly well that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem. Messiah, by the way, just means anointed one, as does Christ. Christ is not Jesus' surname. It, means, it, it describes who he is. It's, it means anointed one. It's the Greek translation of the word Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. Um, but you know perfectly well that the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem because Micah said so in Micah 5 verse 2. So he can't be the Messiah, can he? He's also a preacher. Apparently he used to be a carpenter. He's not a soldier. And he doesn't seem to be intending to fight the Romans either. Although he's getting pretty good at annoying them. But you've also heard that he heals the sick and he makes the blind see. Now today it's the final grand day of the feast. The culmination of, I think it's a week, when Israel remembers the goodness of God in the wilderness, when they dwell in tents for a week um, and think back on the goodness of God. It's also a harvest festival when you give thanks to God for his provision. So on this final grand day of the feast, you go up to the temple courts. You see a crowd, and there's this man you've heard about. And as you draw near, you hear him say something really strange. He says, sorry, I should have put the slide up, shouldn't I? I haven't got it yet. Yes, I have. Um, don't worry reading all of that. It's just evidence that well, I'm not talking nonsense. Um, and as you draw near, you hear him say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never again walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Sorry, the light of life. And as you hear this, you are struck to the core. All those passages that are stored up in your heart about God as light, about the Messiah coming in light, about a people in darkness seeing a great light, come rushing into your mind and you're suddenly aware that something incredible is happening here. He can't proclaim himself as Messiah in front of the Romans, because if he did, he'd be killed. But here he is, speaking in coded language that every Jew will recognise. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, all sorts of bells start going off and lights start flashing. This man is proclaiming himself the Messiah. And not just a light to Israel, he says, I am the light of the world, the whole world. He's proclaiming himself not just a light to Israel, but the whole world. You become convinced and something about him means you just have to follow him. Now our Jewish man was imaginary, but he encapsulates what was happening in the Judah of the first century. They were waiting. They were waiting for God to act, waiting for God to avenge himself against the Romans, waiting for a mighty man to arise 
who would sort the situation out and free them from their oppression. They were waiting and they were longing for everything to be put right when the Messiah came. He was going to sort this mess out. Now today we're in Advent and the meaning of Advent is in the waiting because we are also waiting. We're waiting for the light of the world to return. We're waiting for Jesus to come back and put right the wrongs of this world. Poverty, climate change, wars, drug barons, Vladimir Putin, and a few politicians I won't, won't name. In fact, I, there's an orange one whose name I can't remember. But God's kingdom came in Jesus, and we are still awaiting the final breaking in of that kingdom. We are living in the now and the not yet, as some of you have heard me say before. We live in an age in which the kingdom of God has come in, but hasn't come in fully. It breaks through. There are times when we glimpse it, um, but the time is coming when the kingdom of God will break fully into this world. We work for it. We pray for it. We probably should do it in a different order. And we look for it and we long for it. It's interesting, by the way, that chapter 60 of Isaiah, talking about the triumph of God's kingdom, comes two chapters after a chapter on fasting. But that's a whole different subject. So what's this got to do with Christmas? Well, we're in the season of Advent at the moment. Advent is a season of waiting in anticipation of the events of Christmas, the time when God entered the world as a human being. The time when we see those Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled, not as the people of the time expected them to be fulfilled, but being fulfilled nonetheless. The time when we sing and pray, O come, O come, Emmanuel, not out of... Well, we should sing O come, O come, Emmanuel during Advent, but we tend not to, but it's an amazing... Advent carol, that one. Not out of sentimentality, but out of a deep longing to see God put things right, to bring justice and his kingdom. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Ransom captive Israel. I think it's no accident that the story of the birth of Jesus broke into darkness. It's quite clear that the event with the shepherds, anyway, is at night. And there's something there about light breaking into that darkness on that Bethlehem hillside where the shepherds were doing their day-to-day stuff. The light of the world breaking into darkness, God's kingdom entering this world in the last way anyone would expect, in a room reserved for animals, not a stable, instead of a palace to a woman engaged to a carpenter instead of a royal princess. So what does this mean for us? I'd urge you to do a number of things during this season of Advent. The first won't be any surprise to anyone. It is to read. Read the story in Luke chapter 2. It's not a story, it's a narrative, sorry. It is a story, but it's a true story. Um, 
Read Luke chapter 2 and read Matthew 1, 18 to 2, 23, or preferably the whole of one of the Gospels. You can do it. Get back in touch with what really happened at Christmas. Um, we are bombarded with a radically different narrative, and we need to, uh, Pat talked about mindset. One of the ways we establish mindset is by soaking ourselves in an alternative mindset, in truth. So read it. Secondly, reflect. Reflect on what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world. When Jesus makes these I am statements in John, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, I am the true light, sorry, I am the light of the world, I am the true vine, and there's one other, I can't remember it, but these are all much bigger statements. They're not just nice little devotional statements to help us get through the day. These are massive, massive claims that refer back to the Old Testament. Sorry, I get excited about it, but... um, These are huge claims. They're not just nice little thoughts to help us on our way. So reflect on what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world. It's not a nice statement. It's one of the boldest claims made in history by anyone. But it's not boasting because it's backed up by his life. And then ask God to reveal himself to you and to give you that anticipation for the inbreaking of his kingdom. We can get so settled in the day-to-day that we forget that we're here waiting for God's kingdom to break into this world in our day-to-day life, but also in the return of Jesus to this earth. When, by the way, if you read to the end of the book, heaven comes to earth, we don't go to heaven, and when heaven does come to earth, Jesus is, or God, is the light. There is no other source of light other than God himself. Ask God to reveal himself to you and to give you that anticipation for the inbreaking of his kingdom. And then finally, recognize. If you've recognized that, never recognized Jesus as the light of the world, then I would urge you to examine his claims. Examine what he says about himself. Examine these accounts about him in the gospel and recognize that he is king of kings. He's Lord of Lords. He's not just a sweet baby in a manger. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is the one who will bring justice to this world. He is the one who will sort out the mess. And I would venture to say that he might do it not in a way that you and I think he will. I get really cross with people who think they've worked out the whole sequence of events from the Bible. Um, They're going to be wrong. I guarantee you they're going to be wrong. And God will surprise us, just as he did 2,000 years ago. But this morning, just come and recognize that Jesus as the light of the world. The one who will bring perfect justice, perfect peace. Who will deal with all those boots of war and all the other machinery that was talked about there. He's the one who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And that, folks, is what we need to celebrate at Christmas. I'm just going to pray, and then I'll hand back to Alistair. Father, we want to thank you that you have established your word. You've set out for us what you're doing in this world. We know that we have to go and look and examine and seek 
to have you reveal yourself to us in it. And I want to pray that for each of us here, in these coming weeks, you will reveal yourself to us. I want to pray that you will reveal yourself to each one of us in this room. Not in a Christmas of snowmen and reindeer and fat men in red suits. But Lord, will you reveal to us yourself to us in the glory of who you are. The glory of your coming to this world again. The glory of what you did on that first Christmas two millennia ago. When you entered this world, when God himself entered this world. Will you reveal yourself to us? And Lord, will you help us to recognise, to honour you, to be aware of who you are in all that we do day to day, all year round, not just for a few weeks in December. But Lord, will you, will you reveal yourself to us, I pray? Will you give us that passion, that longing to see your kingdom come? Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.